Rin, Good. Rin, Rin. Okay. Good morning. All right. Well, um, I'll just go ahead and start like, okay. like we're doing. Hello, I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, we're interviewing my longtime friend and longer-time Hilco lobbyist, David Anderson. Welcome, David. Annette, thank you. I am very pleased to get to have this conversation with you and know that it will be, be shared via your podcast. Yeah, I'm excited about it. We've known each other a long time mm-hmm. through the education world, and I was on the school board, of course, in Amarillo, and that's how we met mm-hmm. through some of the state-level work and, and your work with Texas School Alliance. Mm-hmm. Give us your history a sure. little bit in education. Well, this is my 47th school year wow. to work in education. I started teaching in Austin. When you were two. I was. I, well, I was three. <laughs> uh, I graduated from UT in 1973 and began teaching in the fall of 73 at Maplewood Elementary in Austin. I taught fifth grade. I taught sixth grade. I went back and got my master's degree and uh, and became an elementary ed coordinator in Austin and loved doing that. Uh, I took a year off to work for a textbook company when reading was being uh, adopted in Texas, and in those days, reading was the su- reading in Texas was the Super Bowl. Well, I looked up and that Annette that one year turned into eighteen. I worked for three different companies in the educational publishing world, six years with each: a small, a medium, and a large. I was a regional vice president for two of them, and uh, in nineteen ninety seven, although I absolutely loved the textbook world, I got to meet great teachers and administrators and trustees all over the the state, really all over the region. Uh, After 18 years, enough travel, I went to work for Mike Moses at TEA. I was the managing director for curriculum as we implemented what was then the brand new essential knowledge and skills. I had six years at TEA working with Mike and with Jim Nelson, two of the, the best commissioners, I believe, in the history of Texas education. And we had some marvelous projects that we worked on there. In 2003, I left TEA and joined the folks here at Hillco Partners, where I've been uh, active in advocating for clients in the education space, including the Texas School Alliance, as you mentioned, the coalition of now 40 of the larger, more prominent districts in the state. And I've worked in this advocacy world now for almost 17 years, and uh, I absolutely love it. Get to meet, again, meet and work with wonderful educators, as well as some really committed elected officials. Thank you. Over the years that you've been involved, especially in the lobbying world, how have you seen the legislature change around the issue of education, public ed? Annette, that is, uh, that's one of the more fascinating aspects of this, is to look back over the 17 years and see how things changed. Because when I joined Hilco and, and got into advocacy up to my nose, the 2003 session was beginning. I started here the same time the new members in 2003 were starting. And you recall that the election of 2002 was the election in which the House went Republican. So in 2003, we had a Republican governor, a Republican-controlled Senate, a Republican lieutenant governor, a Republican House. It was the first time that, that the Republicans had controlled everything. I think a lot of people thought when that happened, we would see um, some restrictions with funding policy placed on public ed. As it turned out, that 2003 first year was a really good year for public ed. We got almost $2 billion in new funds, I think thanks primarily to several of those freshman members 
Dan Branch from Highland Park, Rob Eisler from the Woodlands, and others that advocated for that. I think what we've seen in my 17 years is the the waxing and waning of, of funding. We saw improvements in 2003. We saw a bump in 2006 with target revenue. And then we saw the incredible blow to public ed in 2011 with the $5.5 billion cut, an unnecessary cut in hindsight. And then back to this situation in, uh, in the spring of 19 when we had $5.5 billion in new funds put into public ed and, and some funds used for property tax relief. We've seen the funding wax and wane. We've also seen, though, um, we've seen a, a circumstance develop that I'm, I'm disappointed in, and that is the uh, basically a growing lack of trust at the state level with elected officials, with the leadership in independent school districts. And by leadership, I, I mean superintendents and trustees. We've seen, seen a growing interest in diminishing the role of elected trustees uh, coming from the state level. And some of that is from the executive branch and some is from the legislative branch. Uh, I think that's not good for Texas. It's not good for our communities. Uh, education, like the military, is something that should have some lay control. And the best way to have that is have people who are elected by the, by the constituents in each of those school districts to, to govern policy and determine who will lead the district. Well, I happen to agree with you along those lines, having been one of those elected officials in the And a real good one, too. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you step back and look at education from the Mm 30,000-foot view and you look at the 5.4 million kids that Mm -hmm. we have in our our K-12 and then the higher ed that you, I know, are quite aware of, the higher ed and, and my interest in the community college, especially there, talk about the alignment or lack of alignment mm-hmm. between the governing bodies of those and what might be mm-hmm. some opportunities for working together? The the lack of alignment, I think, is, is where you have to look because the best opportunities for improving student performance and really improving circumstances for Texas with people to, to move into, uh, into professions and occupations is with that alignment between high school and college. When I started my career, a lot of school districts had very poor alignment between elementary school and and secondary schools, whether it was a junior high or the new middle school concept that was emerging. I think a lot occurred in the late 80s and the 90s in Texas, and we could cite chapter and verse of, of some of those things that happened, but suffice it to say, I think we have, we've come a long, long way to improve alignment from from our pre-kindergarten programs through elementary, through middle school, through high school. And then then we have a problem, and that is the connection between the junior and senior year and what happens in that first year of post-secondary with kids. Well, they're really two different systems and two different sets of expectations, aren't they? They're, they are. And the two systems, well, there is conversation and communication between the two. There's not there's – not tremendous alignment and part of that is the the nature of governance the k-12 pre-k-12 system the regulatory body responsible for that is the texas education agency headed by the commissioner of education a position appointed by the governor on the higher ed side you have the texas higher ed coordinating board responsible for policies for um, 
uh, for overseeing those policies, and you have the Texas Higher Ed Coordinating Board, the institution of higher ed, which is uh, governed by commissioner. We do have a new commissioner, Dr. Harrison Keller, who's just right. begun his work. Uh, just a quick sideline, I will say, with the appointment of Harrison Keller to head the higher ed coordinating board, I believe we have someone there who is who is more knowledgeable and more committed to our community colleges than we've seen in that position in quite some time. Uh, and he understands the K-12 system. Yes, he does. Harrison has uh, has some great experience in K-12 at the policy level, and and someone I have a lot of respect for for his understandings in how how the mechanics of those policies and practices work. And he's got some great experience at our flagship university, the University of Texas at Austin. So I'm I'm very optimistic that with him. Uh, over at Higher Ed Coordinating Board as commissioner, that that perhaps we will see some some recommendations and some some steps taken to better improve the alignment between what happens in our high schools and what happens as those kids leave high school and go on to community college uh, or to four year institutions. Well, in our community, as you know, we've been really trying to pull those systems together yes. and work together, and it, it's really been obvious how differently. Mm-hmm motivated the the organizations and and institutions are and what drives the different institutions and institutional interests so we've really tried to pull that together and and i hope i'm hopeful with the new commissioner we can do that at the state level you you've hit on something i think that's pretty important Uh, the two systems are structured differently the way funding is provided at the local level and at the state level is quite different. Governance of, of independent school districts is very different from the way we govern uh, our colleges and universities. Uh, as I look at the state, some of the best examples of coordination exist around the state, not because of what happens in Austin, but because of what happens in those communities, because the trustees and the administration of a community college and the, the leadership from the superintendent and the trustees of a school district because they work well together and say, this is how we think things should occur in this community. You have some examples around the state of that sort of coordination. I think you can look, look at Arlington and see what Arlington ISD, Tarrant County College, and UT Arlington do with some of the programs for students who are in their junior and senior year in Arlington high schools and what they can do not only to earn college credit in that, but what they can do to have meaningful experiences in nursing, for example, so that those kids that are coming out of high school are ready to go right in, not miss a beat. They've got credit, they've got experiences, and they're going to accomplish something at 19 or 20, one or two years out of high school, that kids in other part of the state are not going to be able to do until they're 22, 23, or 24 years old. And that gets back to the commitment of the leadership of those three institutions. I think you can look at Amarillo. There are a lot of other places. You can look in the Rio Grande Valley. You can look in San Antonio, and you can find examples of that. But those examples are because of initiatives at the local level more so than than state incentives providing that. Which is another reason we need to support local control. Oh, I control. think so. I think so. Um, you know, something that's near and dear to my heart are students who struggle in poverty mm-hmm. and their families who struggle in poverty. 
talk about addressing the needs mm-hmm. of low-income students yeah. for the future of Texas. Uh, I began my career in a Title I school 47 years ago. The circumstances that existed then in that Title I school in East Austin continue to exist in, in schools that serve children in poverty all over the state of Texas. And while we've, we have seen some improvements, uh, we're still not anywhere near where we need to be. Um, we know that a student who grows up in poverty comes to school with smaller vocabulary, with fewer educational experiences. We know that it costs more to educate those kids because you are starting farther back than with kids who come to school with a much broader vocabulary, who come to school speaking multiple languages. Uh, So those are all circumstances that exist. I am very eager as I look toward the end of my career in the next couple of years, I'm very eager to get out four or five years and look back at what happened with House Bill 3, particularly with this, this concept of a spectrum weight for kids in poverty, because I think that, is, that has the potential to do more to help those kids than anything that has occurred in my professional career. And the spectrum weight fundamentally says that not all kids who come from circumstances of poverty are coming from the same circumstance. And the spectrum weight basically recognizes critical ingredients in the circumstances in which a child is living to say that it's, it probably costs more and it needs more money to support education for this student than it does that student. And it's conceptually and practically, I believe that is going to be something we look back on and say, the legislature got that right in, 19, I mean, in 2019. Let's hope so. I hope so. And I, think, I, I think you're on target there. Did they do enough last session? Well, again, looking back on on the 47 years in which I've been actively engaged in education, we see see incremental improvements occur quite often. And incremental improvements are always good because it it gives a system time to to adjust and and respond. And every now and then, we see some of those those, uh, major changes. I think you look at the history of modern education, and, and we go back to Gilmer Aiken Acts of 1949 when modern ed was really created. The Gilmer Aiken Act in the 1970s, the move from a classroom teaching unit to uh, ADA and then weighted average daily attendance as the fundamental manner of funding public schools. The Perot reforms in the late 1980s, Senate Bill 1 in 1995, Dr. Acock's House Bill 5, earlier this decade, and now House Bill 3. Those, those are the bills that I think we can rattle off and say they are the major bills. Your fundamental question, though, is did House Bill 3 do enough? Well, I'm an advocate for public schools. No, it's, it's, it's probably not enough, but when you look at the circumstances in which the, the 86th legislature was operating, uh, I think they did an incredible job of delivering programmatic change and changes to the way schools are funded to really help us in the 1920, 2021, 21, 22 school year. 
You mean the 2020? 2021. 20, <laughs> and then 21, 22. You don't 22. go that far back. No, no. In the, in, the 20, in, the, in the 1920 school year. Okay, okay. This school year we're in right now and for the next three to four years going forward. Uh, I am concerned that the combination of funding for programs with the way we're growing in Texas public schools and the need for additional funds each year to continue to support the property tax compression is going to put pressure on future legislatures, particularly in 2023, to find the funds necessary to continue to support the programs and the tax reduction. And as you know, we're so far below the average yes. amount spent per yeah. student across the U.S. Yeah. Um, it would take, I think, forty-four billion to catch yeah. us up. So no, we're. I think we we just, as much as it hurts to say it, we recognize Texas is, and has been, and will continue to be a low tax, low service state. And when we rely on the state for significant support for public education, we're going to find ourselves in that situation for a long period of time. Let's talk about the accountability system. Um, Certainly. I have concerns that mm-hmm. it that it's, again, the tail wagging the dog, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily doing what's best for mm-hmm. growing our students into great citizens, yes, great creative thinkers, problem solvers mm-hmm. for all those problems that are they're going to need to solve. Mm-hmm. So uh, now that you know my opinion on that, sure. uh, would you reflect on our current accountability system? Yep. I support accountability for our public schools. I think all of our institutions warrant some level of public accountability, and I know you feel that way as well. The question really is, what does the accountability system measure, and how do we report that back to the citizenry of Texas? And if you look back 30 years to when accountability really began in Texas, uh, we had this notion that the state would would tell us what students should know and be able to do. Districts led by elected trustees, superintendents would determine how to do that. And that we would use an assessment program, a large-scale state assessment program, as a dipstick measure of how our campuses and how our districts are performing. But over time, we've moved from uh, that dipstick measure to a high-stakes measure using large-scale student assessment for our campuses and our districts, but we've also done that to our kids. It's now, now large-scale state assessment is a, uh, is a, a significant gotcha system for kids as well as for schools and for campuses. Our system is very complex. There's no way you're going to be able to measure the performance of, of, of 1,000 school districts and 200 charter schools that range in size from those that enroll fewer than 30 to those that enroll like Houston ISD over a quarter of a million kids. The system is going to be complex. What frustrates me right now is we think we can take that complex system or some people in the state think we can take that complex system and we can translate that to something as simple as an A, B, C, D, or F. And we can't. Uh, The way we described district and campus performance prior to the A through F system was better, not a lot better. How do you summarize the work that has been done with a student over 180 days in multiple subjects, account for all sorts of other considerations, and you're going to summarize this based on the results of, some cases, a single large-scale student assessment that takes place over several hours on one day. 
you just can't. And yet we do. And yet we do. Uh, I, I am pleased to see that we have some school leaders, trustees, as well as superintendents, as well as people in think tanks and advocacy groups in higher ed who are saying now we need to be looking at more than performance on a large-scale student assessment to determine how well a student is doing, how well that teacher and that campus have done educating that student, and how the district is doing overall. And, and that's why I'd love to see Texas move to a, a more robust accountability system that uses other measures besides large-scale tests that are administered on a single day. And maybe sampling? Yes. Yeah. The students. You you look at you look at what goes on with some of the breakthroughs in statistical measurement and analysis uh, in all sorts of areas in our society, and you can't help but wonder why can't we apply some of these to our public schools? <laughs> exactly. So moving forward, another session in over a year, things are already starting to happen. Yes, they are. So what do you see coming? Well, I think there's a fairly general consensus that in 2019, we had a major bill on on K-12, including a lot of new money that went into K-12 and a lot of restructuring. And we need to see how this plays out. Yes, there are some things that need to be tweaked. There's, we've spotted some of those already, and the authors of the bill see some of those. So will there be some, some adjustments, some corrections made to House Bill 3 and other bills from this last session? Yes, there always are. But when you know that and you also recognize that the, the first session in any decade is very focused on redistricting, I think that it's easy to make a case that there will not be significant K-12 legislation passed in 2021. I, I think there are a lot of people who believe that higher ed in the education scene, higher ed will be where most of the attention is um, is tuned when the session comes back in, when the legislature comes back in in January of 21, a mere 15 months from now. So I'm not expecting to see major bills in K-12. I expect to see some cleanup language. I think there's some issues that we'll continue to look at. Um, assessment and accountability on the policy side, I just don't see how you have a session without some attention to assessment and accountability. Student safety will continue to be an issue until we, we figure out how as a society we're going, to, uh, we're going to address some of these horrible things that have happened. Our concern about what goes on in schools and how we keep our students safe will be a topic, I think, in every legislative session. As but it I, should be. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I do expect that we'll see more attention to higher ed, which goes back to the question you raised earlier about this alignment, uh, alignment and misalignment between K-12 and higher ed. We'll see some attention there, but more attention on higher ed probably than we do on K-12. If you could wave one magic wand Mm -hmm. one time Mm -hmm. on the legislature, what might you do? Oh, my gosh. That's (laughs) – well, I value men and women who are willing to put themselves out there and serve. Now, you're a great example with your service on the Board of Trustees for Amarillo ISD and now Amarillo College. If I could wave wave a wand and do one thing, I think what I would do is wave that so that we have more people in the House and the Senate who have served on local boards, either boards of trustees or city councilmen or county commissioners, where 
you can't be successful if you don't deliver strong, pragmatic, and positive results. I think if you have more people like that in the legislature, more will get done. The, the other part of that is that when you elect people to the House and the Senate who have served on local boards, locally elected boards, that says you're electing people that have deep roots in the community. And I think that's important. The people who, who move around looking for House seats and Senate seats to run for that don't have the roots in the community, I don't think there is, there is attuned to what those communities want as the people who have been county commissioner or on the school board or served as a city councilman or mayor. So that's what I would do, I think. Thank you, David, and thank you for your service to the state of Texas, to the school children and school districts of Texas, and look forward to seeing what happens going forward. Thanks again for all your time and energies. Annette, thank you, and I'm so pleased you're doing this. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's great to know we have someone like you advocating for good public policy for the 5.4 million public school children in the state of Texas. Thank you for listening to Annette on Education.